In this episode of Dead Horse Mountain Podcast, I interview Christopher Fisher. He talks to us about growing up in New Orleans, art, conservation, preservation, his family, and he shares with us some of his many passions. Chris, in no particular order, is my friend, an artist, a woodsman, a husband, a father. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of trying to explain who Chris Fisher is. I met Chris for this interview the morning of September 14th, 2021, at his art studio. The studio is a repurposed hog barn near the Kings River Valley in Carroll County, Arkansas. It is 15 minutes outside of Eureka Springs, Arkansas, which is the nearest town. So, Chris, Jacqueline Frolic hmm. was, she interviewed Mary for the mm-hmm. NPR thing. Mm-hmm. She described you as a preservationist photographer. Mm-hmm. How do you describe yourself? Uh, I haven't been able to do that for such a long time. I used to be uh, a landscape contractor, so I was in business to provide that particular service. But at the same time, I was an artist. So I would say, well, I I really build gardens for a living, but I also make art. Now, I don't know how to describe what I do because I used to be a certified arborist through the International Society of Arboriculture. And I'm licensed by the city in what's called other as a category because I don't have a specific profession. But what I actually do is I develop projects and I create the narratives and I create the deliverables and then I find the funding for it. And I work with uh, different organizations to execute certain concepts, be it studies or uh, programs or actual development of of constructed scenarios. And... um, I do that part-time. I'm not a full-time person where I hang one shingle and that's all I do during a week or a year's period. I'm not uh, pursuing an actual career like I ever intended to. So a quick Google search on um, a preservationist (laughs) turns up with the definition which is a supporter or advocate of the preservation of something, especially of historic buildings and artifacts, which you you kind of dabble in the idea of preserving sites Correct. that involve maybe some structures, maybe some artifacts, but it sounds like you're pretty keyed on to the the you know the plants. And what got you steered in that direction? Like, you, did you grow up really digging that type of stuff from a from childhood? Yeah, I was thinking about this about how we are um, manifestations of our parents because they are our initial nurturers, right? They set the the agenda for what you're going to learn and what sort of experiences you have. And so to the question of preservationist, the term is a little bit rigid 
in the your definition you relayed indicates that it focuses on the built environment, particularly structures and buildings. And while I do understand the inventory of the built environment and construction of certain buildings, what I've learned is that really where my skill set lies is in the natural resources that provide the basic space that those buildings occupy. And that tracks back to my childhood, just growing up being outdoors a bunch. Um, this is when there were 24 kids in my neighborhood on a single block, and we would just get out there and play in the street. And we would, uh, we had this game called Infiltration, where we would have teams, and you go out and hide. And the object of the game was to come back to a particular base without being seen. And if you got back to base, uh, you would win by having the most accumulated people who got back to base. It was really hard to do because um, it's a limited environment in an urban area of New Orleans. But um, it was that kind of childhood of being outdoors and um, being a Boy Scout and having friends who had country properties that their parents could afford, mine did not. And I would go off on weekends say goodbye to my family and just, you know, plunge into the southern landscape. And then with Boy Scouts, I went on a bunch of camping trips and camps that, that would occupy my summers. And so my grandmother uh, was fortunate enough to buy a piece of property with my grandfather in 1941 as a... Uh, refuge to possibly use if the German submarine force got into the Gulf of Mexico and was able to penetrate the defenses of the city of New Orleans and, and bomb the city. And so I grew up going to her country place that had been a, a sweet potato tenant farm. Um, what does that mean? It means that there were black people who were renting the land and paying off their rent through the provision of a certain amount of their crop. Some sort of a sharecropping evolution. Sharecropping, tenant farming was a southern tradition after the war that um, kept on going long into the Jim Crow days before uh, desegregation started to um, happen. But there had been a sweet potato plant um, canning factory there that this black couple that my grandmother allowed to live on the property as caretakers for the rest of their lives. They just um, <clears throat> took care of cutting the grass and whatnot and uh, lived off to the side. And so I, I was exposed to this amazing landscape of this former farm that was turning back into a forest. And nearby, John James Audubon, the amazing American naturalist, had come there in the 1820s <clears throat> as a teacher and uh, created some of the birds of America for his um, amazing ornithological, ornithological study of the birds of America. He produced some 20 images <clears throat> of his birds there, and this was like two, three miles down the road. So I had this amazing childhood landscape of the country to wander at, at will and learn how to navigate through the woods. And my grandmother and her sister and the friends of my grandmother would come by, including a landscape architect who I eventually worked with in the, in the future, 
taught me about the woods and what these trees were, what these plants were, and the insects and the snakes and all the flora that and fauna that lived there was was uh, deeply embedded into my psyche as a kid. So I'd come back to New Orleans and sort of be in culture. with if we hurt her dogwood trees and we're like we're not going to hurt your dogwood trees and she goes yeah you are you're not going to know better you're going to start climbing on them and you don't go in those trees you don't touch those trees you leave them alone and it's like whoa like right. reverence yeah so she taught us this sort of innate respect sort of thing to not just be hooligans from the city that would come in and you know whoop a tree just with a stick because you could whoop it <laughs> and uh the same time jimmy my dad this is an interesting twist. He was born in 1933 and contracted polio at three years old in 1936 or seven and was debilitated from his hips down. His muscles and his legs never recovered. And he grew up as a teenager, unable to walk without a cane and was sort of uh, ostracized by uptown New Orleans society because there was this fear the stigma that if you had polio, you could, you know, spread that contagious disease to other people. So he was um, put into a uh, sanitarium in Minneapolis with this promise that this woman who had interviewed the family would be able to repair him. He was a candidate for recovery and it didn't work out. But meanwhile, while he was there, he started drawing birds out of his window and studying bird books and would send these letters to his father explaining that he was trying to be a good kid and go through this ridiculous physical therapy to try to get his leg muscles back in order. And I still have these little letters where he drew these birds. And I attribute my love of nature and my dependence upon being a conservationist more than a preservationist to my dad and his mom's whole background with the natural world and uh, he loved insects. So fast forward um, into his middle age while I'm a teenager he inherits my grandmother's efforts to keep the Orleans Audubon Society going. And back then, um, when his mom was involved, there were just a bunch of gray-haired, blue-haired ladies that would get together and talk about going and looking at birds. But he was sort of an environmental activist because he got involved with the New Orleans Ecology Center through a scientist friend of his who... Um, was advocating for uh, using the newly created Environmental Protection Act and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act to protect the Louisiana landscape. And they were particularly concerned with the application of an insecticide known as Myrax that they were using to eliminate massive hordes and infestations of fire ants that were erupting on the 
Cajun prairies and open grass spaces of southern Louisiana. And they were dousing these fields for agricultural production at the expense of bird reproduction. And the Myrax was weakening the egg structures of the bald eagle, but primarily the brown pelican, which was the state's bird. So they correlated the damage to the state's bird and argued with the Louisiana legislature to ban the, the, uh, the chemical from use and were successful. And so the Sierra Club and the Orleans Ottoman Society emerge as these strong environmental action groups that had previously been more recreationally based or just observation based. So he introduces uh, a natural, a documentary film fest where he's bringing um, the filmmakers and their films to a theater on Sundays. And I'm a teenager going to these events with my dad um, and watching just amazing footage of animals and, and uh, the natural environment. This is in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And um, I'm just imbued with all this information about the natural world. So it's impossible for me to disconnect from it and um, eventually wind up uh, becoming a landscape contractor through a sort of self-therapeutic realization that really what makes me happy is working with fixing up a garden or fixing up a landscape or working for someone who just turns me loose on their property to make it better. Do you have brothers and sisters? I, I have two younger brothers. Um, that are very different from me. They were just inherently more conservative. They were frightened by my um, exploration of the world. They preferred to stay home and stay in the neighborhood. I preferred to go away for the weekends. They did not join the Boy Scouts. They wouldn't even go to church. I was forced to be a damn acolyte with perfect attendance for Sunday school for how many years? And these bums wouldn't even get out of their bed on Sunday. And, you know, I still resent that my parents put me through that stuff, but it, it sure did build a certain character. Anyway, they're both fairly successful. My middle brother is doing really well. He's just a smart, smart guy, and he's managed his life and finances really well. And my youngest brother had a little bit of a learning disability, but he took over my dad's engineering business at one point. And that's a struggle to keep it going because the whole um, engineering uh, and mechanical uh, building applications that they're working on, it's all shifting. And I don't know how long that business is gonna stay afloat, but it's been up and running since the 1930s. Wow, that's pretty incredible. What do you think that your, how do you measure success for you? Mm -hmm. And you just said your brothers have been successful. What does that mean to you? That's a really cool question because my dad always used to hammer on me about what I was doing in my life. And we would have these knockdown, drag out, you know, I'm in tears, so disgusted with his expectation of what I'm supposed to be. And I would go to sit down with my mom or my wife, Mary, and say, you know, I just cannot live up to what his 
notion of what success is. And this is interesting because people have been responding to my daughter's situation where she's just gotten this really great job and she's always been really talented and is awarded um, all this recognition for her talent. And people say, you must be so proud of her. And while I am proud, I've learned of late that when I respond to that um, assumption, that I prefer to answer the question with, well, you know, yeah, I am proud, but really what I am is happy that she has attained what she wants with her skills, her talents, and that in the middle of all that, she's happy with it. And that's what my dad did not understand about my version of what success was going to be for me. He had this idea that you become a businessman and you have a bank account and you have resources and you have property and you have things that you've acquired and you move through life in a certain pattern. And he was conservative in that regard. And we never did reconcile that because he always had this notion that I was some, in some way incomplete and I didn't measure up to what my brothers had committed to. And in nearly a strictly business sense, basically. Yeah, but also like that I wouldn't commit to a particular agenda and that I wouldn't um, organize my taxes the way that I should or that um, I lived uh, more in the shadow of my wife's success than my own. And he just didn't understand that I was uh, pretty content with what I was doing most of the time. Is there something that, uh, you know, you're saying your dad was kind of saying things along the lines of you're not focused on something. Do you feel like you haven't been focused on something? Or do you feel like that there is, uh, I guess it's kind of a two-part question. Like, is there something that maybe you feel like you have been using as a beacon? Or do you feel like that it kind of moves around and you just adapt to it? The answer there then is um, I have been less than focused because I'm multidimensional and I've always been that way. I have a lot of biases and I have a lot of preferences and I don't, <clears throat> I don't have a method to balance them out and I don't um, set up priorities very well. I'm really, um, you know, uh, vulnerable to multiple agendas. When I was in art school, my advisor, who was my painting department teacher, looked at my work and he said, <clears throat> you're not developing any one thing. You're just trying all this different stuff. And he says, sooner or later, you're going to have to choose and pick and focus. Well, what he didn't understand was that the art world was changing and that multiple disciplines and interreactive forms of work were becoming the norm. And he was old school thinking, well, no, you've got to paint, you know, brushstroke after brushstroke, and maybe one day you'll emerge as a, a painter who uses a brush right. And I'm like, dude, don't tell me how to use a brush because my contemporaries and my peers are all throwing your these brushes in the trash and they're moving towards digital brushes and they're they're moving towards social issues 
and and developing projects that help people with art, not just trying to make objects that wind up hanging in the wall on the wall in a museum. So, um, yeah, I am interdisciplinary because I have multiple passions and I have multiple skills that I like to apply in an irregular fashion. Monotony and repetition, patterns that require, you know, similar progress over sustained times are really difficult for me to do compared to my wife who can set up a loom and who can weave a pattern that has five different motions for two weeks at a time. I can't do that, that sort of stuff. <laughs> I'm going to loosely quote you. We were working up here on the hillside behind this barn that we're in right now uh, a few weeks ago. And you said you're at a point in your life where each day feels like it's just how you, mm. if you, how you like it to be or how you had imagined it to be. You're just, you're, you know, like it's a recent development in your life. It seemed like that you're in a position to just receive the entire rest of your life's parts that you've placed in a way that every day you just wake up and kind of are very content with how your life is. So, I mean, do you look back at those professors who were like, choose something. You look back at your dad and say, choose something. And, you know, do you somehow feel like uh, you were right and they were wrong? Yes and no. I don't want to feel animosity towards anybody that was trying to govern where I was going to go. But in a way, yeah, you do have to look back and say, you guys didn't understand what was going to be best for me. And, you know, I, I look back, too, on all the benefits that my dad and my, my family and people in the past have really provided to me. But what they ultimately gave me was the ability to make my own choices. And I'm so fortunate to have wound up being the, you know, middle-aged white, decently educated uh, person of means with property that is um, taken care of, meaning that we're not in debt to have it. And so my lifestyle and my career and my work patterns and what I do with my day is something that I can perhaps regulate and that I can control. And I don't know that I ever imagined it working out this way, but it just has. And I guess, you know, my wife makes the good, big decisions that affect all that. And I make more of the micro-reactive sort of decisions that keep that, that keeps that big ball spinning in the right direction. So it's a teamwork thing. You don't, on your own, develop this, well, I figured it all out, at least in my case. So the word content is super important because I think it's a real measure of not just your happiness, but the big scheme of what you do during a day and how you approach the stress of taking care of all the stuff that you're committed to. And then in the middle of all that stress of just the routines of living, how do you hack out the space to do something that is important to you or creative or beneficial to whatever? And I feel like my role now 
is not so much as an artist or as a conservationist, but as someone who is going to take that those passions and put them into the public sphere. And in the case of what's going on with me, and that that then is the um, public space of Eureka Springs that parks and public works and the city have a responsibility to sustain. And so conservationism, artwork, and preservationism all kind of meld into a question of, yes, those are important agendas, but in the long run, do those provide a resiliency for not just you and your family and your land and your friends and your school district and whatever, but in the larger picture, is it part of a legacy that you leave behind with others as a community for the commons, the space that we all sort of share and depend upon, but which does not have an exact clear form of stewardship? So I'm looking at 40 years worth of efforts on the city with their Parks Commission and finding that they have failed in that regard. And so it's pretty amazing to have the tool set and the ability to verbalize that opinion and that observation in a constructive way, meaning that I can recommend remedy and I can recommend a process that will enable better attention to be given to those lands. And so it's pretty amazing to have the tool set and the ability to verbalize that opinion and that observation in a constructive way, meaning that I can recommend remedy and I can recommend a process that will enable better attention to be given to those lands. And what I bring to the table in that case is an extraordinary ability to assess my my true skills are in the visual world. If I can see it, then I'll probably understand it. Um, if I can read about it, I will definitely be able to understand it. And so um, teaching those understandings and working with those understandings with others to create common understandings, meaning that you're going to work together to do something actually valid as opposed to, well, it was just something that we did. I feel like we're in this real rush now to evaluate almost every step we take and determine whether or not it's really um, in the best interest of the planet's future and the community's future. So I'm really happy kind of in a deeply personal way to be able to avail myself to that as opposed to wishing that I could and being frustrated that, oh, well, it's not going to happen. I'm just going to have to isolate and do my own thing. I'm much less involved in doing my own thing all of a sudden. Like the studio is full of artworks that I have interest in, but they're kind of on hold for now because there's like, while the axe is swinging and I'm hitting heartwood and there's hay to be made with these projects, that's going to stimulate work for others and interest by others. And there'll be sort of a, a, a true record that you've left behind, a, a, a true imprint. And that's what a preservationer or conservationist strives to, to deliver, is something that is to be retained, that is to be protected 
for a long time. Learning how to balance that or mitigate those impacts or how to feel like you're part of balancing it a bit is way better than feeling like you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Like you just have to keep listening to diesel trucks burn down the highway. Totally. How important is music to your life? Mm -hmm. Music used to be way more important to me. I guess it was part of an escape, part of a, God, I wish I could be a musician. And I, I let it inform my, uh, my moods a lot and my creativity. Um, and I would spend a lot of time trying to learn what that music was doing, but I was never trained to analyze it. And so I can't even really describe to musicians like you or my daughter what I'm hearing and what I think it means. So my um, diet of music has reduced a lot. I used to spend a lot of time listening and now much less so. And I kind of feel like I have to keep it as a special thing and I can burn out my, my sensory um, appreciation for music and what it does for me. So that now when I listen to music, I pick and choose what I really want to hear and it affects me really deeply. So it's like a dose, that, um, like a vitamin or something extends into your metabolism for a much longer period than when it used to be like 10 hours of music listening a day when you're in a dorm room or in your apartment. So I don't go to live music like I used to, and um, I don't explore much new music like I used to. And I used to do a radio show three hours a day, um, a week on Saturdays here in Eureka. So I was playing um, emergent uh, fusion jazz. And, uh, you know, once you commit to being that persona that you're relaying a certain part of music to the world, you kind of have to invest in your knowledge of it mm -hmm. and become part of the machine of what, what's going on with all that all the time. And luckily, I don't have that commitment to, to music anymore. And... Um, it's interesting to be the father of a musician, um, and my wife is also really gifted as a singer and can play piano. So music is coming out of those two all day long. Mary hums to herself and can sing any lyric from any jingle from television or movie that she's listened to, like, a, like an encyclopedia. Anyway... Um, there's certain performances in music that, that stand out and are these like amazingly iconic uh, moments that I infuse into my soul and it, it, it can be the wind in my sail for a long time. It can be the, the soundtrack that I take to the desert island. Like for instance, I listen to um, the Jimi Hendrix performance at Woodstock just by watching the film, the Woodstock thing. I um, was able to just scan through the three and a half hour movie to the to the finale of the of the festival, and sure enough, I'm in tears. You know, watching just seven eight minutes of a guy who I believe is an absolute god among humans, for the fact of how he was able to channel just amazing uh, energy through that guitar and through the stage and to that that group of people watching him do it and that it was recorded th 
through instruments known as um, microphones and cameras is enough to keep me satisfied musically for... Do you think basketball is a necessity or an accessory? I think sports and physical exertion and, uh, you know, dealing with the forces of gravity and playing uh, in a strategic way against another team is a great form of learning and a great use of your body. But I really question the whole industrial level of the athlete as performer making so much money in a very rarefied way. I watch um, school districts and their sports programs advance through things. And I read the, the miserable parts of kids that are really injuring themselves because they want to be some form of an athlete. So it's kind of hard to criticize sports because I love sports. I think, I think teaching people how to be physically active without harming themselves would be more productive. Like the Olympics that just went on, I was listening to the reports of it thinking, why does that matter that someone's faster than another person or can jump higher than another person? Why have we commodified that? Why have we created you know, Rolex support advertisement for these endowments and these endorsements to, to generate these superhumans for what what do they do for the planet exactly? between Eureka Springs and New Orleans and Mary and I and hurricanes. And it's a, it's a story unto itself, but um, let's go to hurricanes. I can remember 1965, Hurricane Betsy is approaching the city. <clears throat> and back then, meteorology and forecasting was impaired, let's say, compared to what it is now. There's this famous weatherman named Nash Roberts who really understood it and was a go-to guy for the United States. This is probably while NOAA is in its early stages and the National Hurricane Center is years and years away. So anyway, Betsy was one of these world-rocking experiences where the eye of the hurricane came over the city and it was a Cat 2 or maybe a 3. And... That night, my grandmother's staying in our house with us. We have a two-story wooden frame home in Uptown on solid, elevated land. <clears throat> and it was a wind event, primarily, where uh, slate shingle from the roofs of the neighborhood were flying around like shard and ting, 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 landing in the wooden weatherboards. So you go outside after the storm, and it looks like an Indian showdown where people are tossing 
razor-edged slated each other, and it's the buildings. Trees blown down, but what happened um, was more catastrophic east of town and out in the west where these um, where the levees were just not even in place yet, where huge neighborhoods were flooded. And it was a wake-up call uh, for New Orleans to start considering its future with powerful storms like that. There'd been powerful storms before, but they hadn't quite tracked over the modern version of the city. And then in 1969, we were on the Gulf Coast in the summer. This is the summer of Woodstock. I am uh, 12 years old, and my dad gets wind that Camille is on the way. So we have to scurry back um, quickly back to New Orleans from Florida, where my grandfather had a place that we could stay, which was super chill, and we didn't want to leave. But we wind up stopping along the way on the Gulf Coast and stay in a hotel because it was just a long push on my, my crippled dad to drive and get all that shit together in a, in a, in a quick time timetable. So my brothers and I are swimming in a pool for probably like 10 hours uh, in a row one afternoon and then the next day, and then it's called, get out of the pool, we're going home now, we can, we've got to go. So we get home and, and Camille turns out to be a cat five slams into the Mississippi Gulf Coast about 45 miles east of New Orleans. And the wind and the event that, that Camille brought was um, furious and easy to feel. And I don't remember exactly what it did to our house like I do Betsy, but it was one of those world rockers. So, okay, those are two major storms. Camille was the the lowest pressure weather system to hit the United States in about 100 years. And it's still being studied, and it's one of the landmark storms for the meteorologist guys to, to learn about because the, the um, satellite and science stuff was really able to measure what Camille did. So, you know, fast forward years later, there's more and more storms coming through New Orleans, more and more heavy rainfall downpours, and you realize that the city's vulnerable no matter what. And, um, okay, so then shifting out of New Orleans, Mary and I, in our early 20s, are moving out of New Orleans. She's married and winds up in Eureka Springs. I'm unmarried and wind up in Eureka Springs from meeting somebody at the New Orleans Jazz and uh, Heritage Festival. So Mary and I lived in Eureka without knowing each other for several months, and we were both in the Susan Morrison Gallery as artists. And we get together at an artist kind of picnic that Susan put together and started talking a little bit and realized we were from New Orleans. And then... Um, Things go kind of haywire with my girlfriend, and Mary's husband has decided he wants to move them back to New Orleans, and I become Mary's tenant um, while uh, she's waiting for Jim, her husband, to come up and uh, move them. Well, we develop a romantic relationship, and the rest is history. In any event, we both move down back to New Orleans, and... Um, long story short is there's hurricanes galore that keep coming through. We have a family with Indigo. She's an infant. And we're forced to evacuate some two or three times before she's even five years old out of pure necessity. You cannot stay in a building where you can't lift your windows up 
because you don't have screens on them because you don't want to have open windows with screens in the neighborhood because people can climb through your windows. We don't have burglar bars. We're not set up to be protected in our own home. And when you don't have power, it's really not a place to be trying to keep a baby in diapers and the food thing going. So we would leave, and it was such a haggle. So at some point, Mary had already purchased this land that we're sitting on um, as a, an eventual return getaway to New Orleans, uh, to Eureka. And um, a year before Katrina hits, there's a series in the New Orleans Times-Picayune called Washing Away. It was, it was intense, front page, multiple pages deep, each issue for three or four days. And they basically outline the fact that New Orleans will have to continue to evacuate, that uh, FEMA will not allow for internal evacuation, meaning you're not going to go to a shelter because we're not going to be able to provide supplies for you. You have to leave the city. And um, I'm getting the, the clear message that New Orleans is on a fatal curve towards um, you won't be able to inhabit this place anymore. And I'm, I'm curious as to why the insurance industry didn't say, so guess what? This is not sustainable for our business model. You're going to have to figure out what you're going to do because we're not going to be able to continually rebuild this place. So that put the bug in both of our ears to leave. And we came, I came up to Eureka to look at the schools to see how Indigo would fit in. Meanwhile, we had purchased a house in town with the idea that, well, we could move there. But it was rented just like the farm was rented and we didn't have any immediate plans. Well, that spring before the storm came, Katrina, we were pretty much decided that after the next school year, we'd move up and that was spring of 05. So late summer of 05, Katrina arrives. And I'm watching on Friday night, the director of the um, NHC in Miami give a stout, stern message that I am in touch now with the mayor of New Orleans. And I believe that the southeastern Louisiana Gulf Coast will sustain a category five disastrous hurricane the likes of which have never hit that coast. And that's all it took for me to get the message going. If this guy's saying that now, some three or four days out, the tracking models must be really stiff and not wavering. So I didn't tell Mary that night. She woke up in the morning and turned on the TV and beat me to it to tell her we were leaving. She goes, oh my God, look. And I said, yep, we're out of here today. So we packed up and left and made it to Northwest Louisiana, where her uh, cousin lived, and we're watching on television that um, Katrina is just kicking New Orleans' ass. So we decide to call Eureka and see if we can't stay with some friends and just take a vacation and wait it out. And Jimmy, I, I can succinctly remember going into the bank where we had an account because of our properties here. We couldn't get in to our funding in New Orleans. Our banks were just completely dead. There was nothing online, nothing. We couldn't get in touch with my parents and we're just trying to figure out what are we gonna do to buy groceries and just set up a camp for a while. And I'm looking at a television and there is New Orleans on the screen with the 
the text bars running left and right underneath it. And it's downtown New Orleans near the parish prison. And there's trustees up on the interstate and a bunch of dudes in striped outfits. And I'm like, holy fuck. It's Orleans Parish prisoners are up on an interstate with water all around them. There's no exit off. They just barely got the fuck out of there and they're up on elevated surface. And the camera pans around and there's bubbling volumes of natural gas and fire erupting out of the swamp water. And just telling you this gives me the goosebumps because if you want to look at an apocalyptic scene of a place that you remember as your home, that was it. It was dystopian from get-go. And I'm like, holy fuck, and I'm breaking out in tears. And there's, I'm in this bank lobby and I don't usually get overwhelmed, and I don't usually go to that visceral button, but I'm completely overwhelmed and t- terribly saddened that how how do you rebuild, how do you put that back together? And it was an immediate realization that we're not going back. So we put in to go into school. We got a house down the road here that's offered to us for a while, and we'd make the decision about how we're going to Transition. When Indigo might have been a baby, I'm driving around uh, the historic loop and coming around from Grotto and going up Ellis Grade, and there's that little log cabin that was the parks office. And I had remembered it when I lived here in the 80s. Um, and the feeling that I got when I saw that building on that trip was, wait a minute, look at that, it's the parks office. Oh yeah, there's a parks commission here. And I literally thought, you know, one day I'm gonna be working in that building. I'm, that building is gonna offer me a lot. And I just knew it. And I told Mary, I said, I saw the parks office today. So um, I never really looked into parks until we got here. But there was something about that place beckoning me to say, you're gonna have a relationship with this place, that particular building. And sure enough, man, I've, I've cut some heavy firewood sitting in that building, figuring out what are strategies and how do we get some funding put together? And what are we gonna do for about 2,000 acres of public property in this place? It's a good conversation, man. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your morning this cool. morning talking to me and indulging me. <coughs> you have any just, final thoughts? Huh? Do you have any final thoughts? Mm, no, but we should continue it.